Transstorm. Our final topic, picked by you, dear listeners, earlier in a poll on our Facebook page is Golf Crisis, Who Will Blink First? Focusing on the simmering tensions between Qatar and its former Arab allies. Saudi Arabia and its allies gave Qatar a list of 13 far-reaching demands as a prerequisite for ending the Gulf crisis. Though Doha said that not only does it outright reject some of them, but that it won't enter into dialogue until the nearly month-long blockade is lifted first. A few of the points contained in the ultimatum include shutting down Al Jazeera and its affiliates, kicking Turkey out of its new military base, dramatically downscaling relations with Iran, and cutting all ties with certain Islamist groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood. Saudi Arabia gave Qatar 10 days to comply with these and other harsh demands, meaning that it has until next week to do what is told, though it's unclear what will happen if Doha doesn't abide by these orders. One of the particularities of the Gulf crisis is that it's curiously put the U.S. and Turkey somewhat, key word, on the same side, at least superficially, in spite of the recent high-level disagreements over the Syrian Kurds. Washington surprised a lot of observers by lightly criticizing some of Riyadh's demands on Doha and visibly making an attempt to pragmatically balance between the two sides. Ankara, for its part, has spoken out against the multilateral bullying of its Gulf ally and President Erdogan, stated in no uncertain terms that the Turkish military base in Qatar won't be going anywhere. While Turkey's position is somewhat predictable given its leadership's ideological affiliation with the Qatari-sponsored Muslim Brotherhood, some analysts were taken aback by the U.S.'s unexpected stand, leading them to wonder whether Washington is being disingenuous with its moderate position and playing a double game. If left unresolved, there's a chance that Qatar and Iran could move even closer together and possibly even cooperate with Russia in forming a gas OPEC, something which is completely contradictory to Saudi Arabia's interest, especially if this leads to an EU-destined pipeline through Turkey. On the other hand, the tightening of the Saudi-led Arab access between itself, Bahrain, the UAE, and Egypt is also problematic for Qatar and Iran. So either way, something will probably give sooner than later. But the question is, who blinks first? All right, folks, so uh, to begin speaking about the Gulf crisis and where it's headed, we're joined by Mr. Patrick Henningsen. He's the executive editor of 21stCenturyWire.com. Trendstorm. All right, Patrick, uh, what started as a spat between Qatar and Saudi Arabia has quickly escalated to involve the interest of several somewhat competing great powers, most direct to the U.S., Turkey, and even Iran. So how does the broadening of the Gulf crisis affect the prospects for its eventual resolution? The broadening of this Gulf crisis has created a lot of opportunities, hopefully, for de-escalation between the block of the sort of major powers that have been lined up against uh, Syria, Russia, Iran, and, and also extensively Hezbollah. This has created a, a split where NATO interests uh, had once seemed to be aligned between, especially between the United States and Turkey, uh, and that created a, a northern front for Syria that it was having a lot of trouble dealing with, I think, on many levels, not least of all the porous border along Syria's northern region with Turkey and the extremist fighters uh, going to and fro. I think some of that is still happening in Idlib, but uh, in terms of uh, Raqqa further eastward, maybe less so. But more than that, it's the what seemed to be Universal cooperation between the United States and Turkey now is that's all been thrown into doubt uh, as Turkey seems to have taken its side 
with Qatar in this Gulf split. So this is a great opportunity for Russia uh, to move in into a much stronger position allied with Turkey, but then also bringing Iran also onto that side and possibly, unbelievably, in fact, uh, Qatar having mutual interests with this bloc too. This would be a huge reversal of Qatari policy backing proxy war uh, against Syria in hopes of destabilizing the government in Damascus and uh, who knows what else afterwards. Yeah, I mean, this definitely is a pretty pivotal reversal, as you put it. Now, I want to ask you more about the Russian and the American positions on this because, you know, the U.S. has made a several overtures to Qatar and Saudi Arabia in an attempt to uh, balance between them, while Russia had done something similar by actively keeping high-level communication channels open with both parties. So what is it that Washington and Moscow want to achieve, and are there more commonalities or contrasts between their real objectives? Hopefully, there at least a recent acknowledgement from Washington that uh, there's now a serious problem, the potential for confliction over the skies of Syria as a starting point. I believe the uh, Department of Defense had General Mattis issued a statement only a couple of days ago, basically saying that uh, the United States would like to de-conflict with Russia on many levels and do not want to see an unnecessary war break out in Syria. This is unbelievable as a statement compared to what uh, Washington's actions have been, the pattern of behavior over the last few months and even further back from that. So that's a positive step forward. Is this just a temporary measure? Because we did see conciliatory statements made by Washington uh, back in March, if you remember, consecutive statements from uh, Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson and then U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley saying that uh, maybe Bashar al-Assad should stay in power and uh, the, the business of democracy should be left up to the Syrian people. And lo and behold, only a few days after that, we had the uh, Idlib chemical weapons attacks, or so-called sarin attack, which was then followed by a cruise missile strike by Washington. So is field just being softened up right now by Washington for another bluff, another bait and switch that we saw back in the spring? I don't know. I think this could actually be, as a, it looks anyway on the surface of being a genuine diplomatic overture, maybe some sort of acknowledgement on Washington's part, possibly due down to some positive communications between uh, the White House and Moscow recently, that maybe this is uh, the policies of the last eight years under the Obama administration has just been one failure after another. And rather than trying to uh, provide piecemeal bypass solutions, the Trump administration possibly, possibly taking a pivot in a positive direction and maybe a climb down in Syria, perhaps. Certainly, it does have some of the indications of this. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are a lot of mixed signals, and it's also mixing up the whole Mideast. So, uh, Patrick, the last thing I want to ask you is, uh, how has the Gulf crisis rearranged the geopolitics of the Mideast? And do you see its forecasted consequences as having more of a stabilizing or destabilizing effect for all of Eurasia? Well, that, de that depends on the behavior of the uh, uh, parties and also of the belligerents in this situation. And if they're going to continue to be belligerents, I'm talking about primarily the United States, I'm talking about its allies, the United Kingdom, I'm talking about France, Saudi Arabia, backers of the proxy war in Syria, and even, even to Qatar to a lesser degree, and also Turkey. So it, this does have the potential for some stabilization in the short term, at least if we're talking about Syria. Sort of a stalemate situation that we're looking at isn't a bad thing. It's, it has allowed Syria 
with the guarantee of Russia to sort of proceed with some of the pr- policies and projects to put forward in the Astana uh, process. And so we've seen some major gains made by the Syrian Arab army to regain territory, but not just that, just an end to hostilities in areas that have been mired with conflict for years and allowing people who live in these regions to get back to some semblance of normal life. That can only be seen as a positive thing. However, what's going on on the periphery of this now? Possibly greater, the greater threat. We just see these blocks and alliances forming. It does remind us of early 20th century power politics. I'm talking about World War I. So now we have two separate sort of blocks seeming to form. And then a spoiler in Israel sort of laying off into the corner who could, you know, a rabid dog that could attack at any moment and really throw things uh, into some sort of chaos. So we'll, we'll wait and see how it progresses. But this also has ramifications even further north in Eurasia. So if we're looking at uh, what's happening north of Turkey and also the situation in the Ukraine along the uh, eastern European frontier, European border with Russia, this also has some significance there as well. Alrighty, Patrick, thank you. Uh, you really covered the whole gamut of things. Thank you very much. Trendstorm. Now we're going to switch over and speak to Mr. Gilbert Mercier. He's the author of The Orwellian Empire, editor-in-chief of News Junkie Post, and a geopolitical analyst. Okay, Gilbert, uh, what do you think the Saudi response will be after the 10-day deadline expires, given that Qatar probably won't capitulate to the terms being demanded of it, and how important will American support be in determining what Riyadh ultimately chooses to do? Well, as you said, it is very unlikely that uh, Qatar will capitulate to the Saudis' unreasonable demands, especially the big ones, such as uh, shutting down Al Jazeera, closure of the Turkish military base, severing ties with the Muslim Brotherhood, and reversing the moderate stand towards Iran. It would amount to giving up the sovereignty. As far as the Saudis' response, there is one key factor in it, and it is the proverbial 800-pounds gorilla in the room. While Saudi Arabia has been an absolute monarchy since 1932, it used to be largely ruled by a council of 34 men from the Saud dynasty. Since the palace coup of Crown uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, this is no longer the case. The 31-year-old bin Salman has de facto absolute power on all key sectors of the government and economy, namely Minister of Defense, Interior, and the head of Aramco, the nationalized oil and gas company, which provides more than 90% of the kingdom's revenue. Despite its brashness and disastrous financial management of the kingdom's affair, <clears throat> with his massive war spending in Yemen, Bin Salman is popular in many circles. In Saudi Arabia, the young generation call him affectionately MBS. Meanwhile, globalist-friendly publication such as Bloomberg Report, has called them Mr. Everything. More problematically, the impetuous young man fancy himself as a warrior prince. With so much apparent power in his hand, he could follow his aggressive impulse, like in Yemen, of the voice of reason. While at the core of the crisis, Bin Salman is likely an instrument manipulated elsewhere to further the destabilization of the Mideast. Okay, well, the next thing I want to ask you, though, Gilbert, is uh, how do you evaluate the U.S. role in the Gulf crisis thus far, and what outcome does Washington want to see by the end of it? 
Well, Andrew, if the, if the intention of the U.S. is to defuse the crisis, their role so far has been a complete disaster. When you look at the timeline, it is obvious that Washington greenlit the palace coup of Bin Salman, likely with Israel's approval. Look at it this way. It all happened in the aftermath of Trump's flamboyant visit first to Riyadh, then Tel Aviv. In previous U.S. administrations, actions were usually in contradiction with a lofty diplomatic peace-seeking narrative. In the Trump administration, the discourse itself is schizophrenic. Trump sided with Saudi Arabia and accused Qatar of supporting terrorists, while Secretary of State Tillerson gave the Saudis a stern warning. While Trump bragged about his huge arms sale to the Saudis, Secretary of Defense Matisse quietly sold $12 billion worth of weapons to Qatar. It also appears that Trump has partially relinquished his function of Commander-in-Chief to Matisse in terms of troop deployment and military operations. In the Trump era, if you wish, it is shoot first, talk later. Arming both sides of conflict, which is the case here, certainly doesn't indicate a political will from Washington for a diplomatic resolution. Accusing Qatar of sponsoring terrorism is like the pot calling the kettle black. After all, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the U.S. have all sponsored jihadists worldwide for four decades. Starting in Afghanistan, in a plan conceived by recently deceased puppet master extraordinaire Brzezinski. The benefit for the U.S., which has become a de facto war economy, largely run for the industrial military complex interest, is a boost in weapon sales. Okay, well, then the last thing I want to ask you, considering all that we've just discussed as far as Albert, is uh, given the shifting power dynamics in the Mideast, particularly and even somewhat surprisingly, even in the Gulf too, like we've been discussing, what forecast can you share with us about where you see things headed in the coming six months? Well, Andrew, the, the ingredients for an explosive situation are all there. An outright war could start within weeks between two powerful blocks. It must be diffused at all costs. If Ben Salman is his own master, he is likely to cut into pressure from the international community. If he is the tool of the U.S. and Israel's Mideast demolition policy, then Russia, China, and the EU must put pressure on Washington and Tel Aviv. That said, crises do not happen in a vacuum. The tensions between Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been simmering for some time. They are, as a matter of fact, the manifestation of a conflict within two fundamentalist points of Islam, Wahhabism and Salafism. They flared up six years ago when both nations competed to hijack the Arab Spring. Qatar briefly had the upper hand in Egypt after the election of a Muslim Brotherhood candidate, but it was short-lived as he was quickly toppled by President Sisi, who had Saudi and U.S. support. Both states were partners in financing fake revolution by proxy jihadists in Libya and Syria to serve the, serve the, serve the West imperialist regime chain policy in the region. It, it has backfired everywhere as ISIS and al-Nusra quickly became rogue armies responding to no one. 
It would be foolish to expect the U.S. to defuse a situation they largely created in the first place. After all, deliberately or not, the U.S. foreign policy has produced nothing but chaos. Look at Iraq. Look at Libya, Syria, and Yemen. The new crisis, which involves on different sides three large countries with substantial military might, such as Egypt, Turkey, and Iran, has to be resolved by diplomacy. A regional and international peace conference, including all parties, big or small, should take place under the auspice of Russia, China, the U.S., and the EU. Alrighty, Jobert, thank you very much for sharing that with us. It was pretty thought-provoking. I appreciate it. Trendstorm. Now, folks, if we think back on what uh, Patrick and Jobert share with us, I think that we can come to the reasonable conclusion that there are two different blocks forming in the Mideast over this Gulf crisis, and Russia's trying to balance between the two, and it's sincere in that. Whereas the U.S. is making pretenses of balancing, but in reality, we have to doubt its motives because this whole crisis was in one way or another, we can believe, provoked by the United States. And now the question is, why would it do this? Does it want to divide and rule the Mideast? Does it just want to sell more arms? Well, we got to see what the eventual outcome is. But either way, tensions are high and we need to keep our eyes on this crisis. Alrighty, folks. Well, if you want to sound off and share what you think about this, please send us an email at radio or find us on Facebook. And with this, we end this week's edition of Trendstorm, brought to you by Radio Sputnik. It was presented by me, Andrew Kripko. Thank you for listening, and take care.